magic is power. What is up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Leaving Legacy. My name is Patrick. I am your Legacy Newbie. With me this week, as always, is actually no one. Uh, this week, Jerry got a chance to sit down with Jarvis U and record a segment. And I was supposed to sit down with another guest. And unfortunately, our schedules couldn't line up. We had to cancel last minute. Well, reschedule last minute. So that segment will be coming to you uh, very shortly. But this week, uh, you get a chance to sit down with for a little me and you action, if you know what I mean. So uh, check it out, and I'll be back after the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leaving a Legacy. No Patrick today. He had a call-out sick and screw up our schedule. But never fear. We have an awesome guest today. Uh, I'm joined by the one Jarvis Yu. How's it going, man? It's going well. It's a nice holiday, so... Yeah, nice uh, afternoon recording session. We don't get to do that too often, so it's a nice... Re- uh, real quick, so as always, Hipsters is brought to you... Uh, or, sorry, Leaving a Legacy is brought to you by Hipsters of the Coast. Uh, also, if you want to support our Patreon, uh, check it out in the show notes. I'm not going to get too far into it. That's Pat's job. We can't can't let him off the hook too easily. <laughs> Uh, so, so Jarvis, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I guess, you know, I, I, you're pretty well known in the magic community, especially the legacy community, but, you know, for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with you, you know, you want to give us kind of your, your rundown, what, what's your deal in the magic scene? Um, so currently I'm a silver level pro. Last year I was gold. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to re-up, you know, these things happen. Uh, I am... I am primarily known as a legacy player, although I find that somewhat interesting because I didn't really get into the format until, like, 2009, 2010, 2011, when I, uh, I guess when I could really afford more of it. But generally, I actually just play a lot of most formats. Sometimes I'll play a bunch of standard, a bunch of modern, a bunch of limited, depending on what the next GP format is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I am known as that lands guy by the by the. Sometimes I like to mix it up to keep people guessing. Yeah, I, I actually I took a look at uh, your tournament finishes a couple days ago in preparation for this, and you know you've also put up uh, some results with some Delver lists. So not only do you play every format, but you also play you know multiple styles of decks within those formats. Right. So is it just, you know, you, you like all of these things, your interest can't really be held in one area for so long, or is, you know, what what kind of, it seems like you're really just kind of a jack-of-all-trades. So uh, one thing I've noticed about the actual top-level professionals uh, that I'm friends with is that they don't really pigeonhole themselves into a style of deck. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to be one of the elite, you need to be able to switch decks or know how to play a style of deck even if it's something you don't really enjoy playing. Right. Uh, I actually tend to enjoy sort of more mid-rangey decks that have an inevitably good late game. Lands is a good example of that. Another good example of that is sort of like the old Mulera, Mulera collected company like combo decks in Modern. Mm-hmm. So that I think that's the style of deck that appeals the most to me, but it's important to be able to play like a tempo deck, an aggro deck, control deck, all have them all with be within your comfort zone 
Right. I feel that's especially important for a format like Standard. You know, in Legacy, you can kind of get away with just playing the same style deck over and over because almost any deck can take down a tournament weekend to weekend. Right. But from my outsider's point of view of Standard, it definitely seems like certain styles come into favor, you know, ebbs and flows a lot more frequently, and you need to be able to play those types of decks if you want to take down the tournament that week. Yeah, that that's a different skill set from Legacy. Actually, there was a very good article by uh, Brian Brown Dune last week talking about what skills are necessary for each format. I would recommend your listeners read that article if they haven't already. I think it's just a good overall view of Magic. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we'll throw that in the show notes. Uh, I always love those kind of like level up articles or videos or just discussions where it's not necessarily right. you know talking about being better at a specific deck or a specific card, but just overall what you can do to just be a better all-around player right nice well you weren't always the uh the pro magic player you are now how did you kind of get into magic uh so sophomore summer uh so i went to dartmouth college which is in hanover new hampshire but most sophomore summers people are either on campus or in a foreign study program my friend and i my friend israel marquez uh, and I were roommates in a foreign study program in Beijing, China. And he uh, is from Roanoke, which is where Star City Games is. Mm. So he had kind of a big collection, and we would play Magic like between classes and studying and whatever. And he had two to four decks of what of a format that's dead now, but it was called Extended. Good old uh, Extended. Well, there were several iterations of Extended, but this was a really old version where it was Tempest to the current block with some bands. Um, so he would give me Shuhei Nakamura's Red Deck Wins, and he would play some version of The Rock, and we just played for, like, hours and hours. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how I got into the game, and then that was in 2004, and then after I graduated college, I think I sort of branched out more to just trying to learn everything I could about the game. Yeah, it just kind of got you hook, line, and sinker. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Nice. So so that was extended. So you said Tempest to the current block. Do you happen to remember, you know, what what was the standard set at the time? Uh, so it was 2004, 2005. Kamigawa had just come out. Oh, yeah. Good old Kamigawa. The, the set that made me quit magic for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was kind of an underpowered set. <laughs> I know. And then I feel I felt really bad because, like, wasn't the set right after uh, the first Ravnica? So if I had just held on a little bit longer. Yeah. I think they learned... Well, they keep relearning lessons and unlearning them and relearning them. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Awesome. So... so you made your way from extended, you know, where, how did you kind of first get become, you know, I want to be a pro player. This is, you know, really something I want to shoot for. It's less of that. And more that I think I just wanted to play higher stakes tournaments and that becoming a professional in my free time was sort of an accident. Okay. Uh, I, I have a 40 hour job. Uh, so it actually makes practicing difficult sometimes, but I try to practice more efficiently because I only have like two to three hours per night mm -hmm. instead of people who, you know, I, some people have magic as their full-time career and that's, that's great. I just don't want to do that. So yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it makes it a little bit harder to practice, but I, my father always used to say work harder, not, or work smarter, not harder. Right. 
So yeah, you're also pretty famous uh, for you know being very analytical about the formats. Uh, I, I hear I hear a rumor that you like your statistics. I I'm a statistician, so yes, I do enjoy my statistics, and oftentimes I think data will show something that people don't realize or people think the opposite is true. So don't ignore the data, but also know when small sample sizes are a danger because mm-hmm. that's also a thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Adam Adam Wallace actually had a great question that I wanted to bring up. We were going to talk about it a little later, but I think now is a good time to uh, bring it up. Adam, first of all, just said uh, he he likes you coming on the cast. He makes sure that you're always on his fantasy pro tour roster. <laughs> so, oh, nice. <laughs> we got that going. And then he wants to know, you know, how does being so heavily involved in the legacy community kind of help or hinder you at the pro tour level? You know, given that it, it's primarily standard and limited on the pro tour. Uh, you know, do you like Legacy? Is Legacy your favorite format? Or, you know, do you find yourself having to give up, you know, playing Magic that you would prefer to play in order to practice for the Pro Tour level? Uh, well, you definitely have to make sacrifices at some point. There's always an opportunity cost. Um, yes, when, when like, basically the new set is out and there's only two to three weeks of preparation, I'll just go into Hibernation, read every other format, and only... Only play the two formats that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like only having two to three hours per night means that you have to do that, um, and you also have to trust your teammates at some point. And in fact, having a team slash networking is one of the most important things you can do preparing for pro tours because one person working by themselves, they're going to get a lot of inbred thoughts, ideas. There's no like collaboration. You'll just get stuck in ruts. You you need someone else to challenge your thoughts have different ideas, you know, try new things. Uh, so I think being known as a legacy specialist doesn't hurt you, nor does it hinder you. It's just a different thing for a different time, if that makes any sense. Right. And then uh, kind of Adam's follow-up question, speaking of network, is uh, have you started looking at which st- standard modern players uh, you'll be the legacy ringer for at the uh, Team Pro Tour? Okay, so last year I was on Master Up East, uh, which is, it was me, Pascal Maynard, Ricky Chen, uh, Tim Wu, Eric Severson, and, dang it, I always forget the last person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, sometimes sometimes it is uh, difficult to remember. I can, I can remember real quick. <laughs> With the help of the internet. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie, so th- there were... There were a lot of people on our testing team for the last pro tour, so sometimes I get confused. John Stern. Uh, so uh, our uh, the original team that we were on, I don't know if you know this, was East West Bowl for Pro Tour Oath. Okay. And the reason we're called East West Bowl is it's a key and peel skit. Okay, nice. <laughs> you, you should for your listeners out there. Uh, a friend of mine, a very funny guy named Alex Madelton, came up with the team name because he also really enjoyed that Keen Peels. And uh, I don't know if you know who Alex is. He has a ton of Grand Prix top eights, mostly with Modern and Extended Affinity. Mm-hmm. Well, when you could play Extended Affinity, he top eighted a bunch. And also when you could play Modern Affinity, he also top eighted a bunch. So, uh, yeah, he sort of founded this. He, Him and Mark Jacobson founded this team. And then we became Mash Drop East, Mash Drop West, and Mox Box Bowl. So we've retained the East-West Bowl in the last word of each team name, which is kind of funny. Awesome. It, it was 
And also in the team listings, all of our names were next to each other by accident, so still formed East-West Bowl when you looked at the team listing. Good. <laughs> obviously, we don't know that there's not going to be anyone between Mass Drop and Mox. Mm-hmm. It just kind mm-hmm. of happened, which is still kind of funny. <laughs> well, uh, but, well, yeah, we'll post that clip up because Key and Peel are yeah, hilarious. Yeah, it related to that, uh, I don't know the precise situation with, for that, but... Basically, I think any team I'm going to be on, I'm going to play the legacy seat, and I'm going to trust my other teammates to do whatever they, they think is best. Hmm. So do you think, you know, is it too early to tell? Do you think he'll be on lands? What what deck are you kind of most comfortable with at this point in the current meta? I think um, I Rex is Delver, actually, recently, and I played a bunch of lands, and I played a bunch of checkpile. I think I could realistically play anything. Um, I don't really feel that comfortable with a storm style deck like the traditional rite of flame or cabal ritual storm decks i think they're not really quite in my wheelhouse or i don't know they they also have like depending on who you ask they're either great or unplayable like it's a very polarizing (laughs) it's a very polarizing deck true finally um i don't think i would play those also, I'm not a fan of Sneak and Show or Reanimator ah. due to my personal experiences with them, but... You're breaking my heart. <laughs> I love me some well, Sneak and Show, but no, I understand. <laughs> the, the issue I had with those decks with testing them over a large sample size is that they're kind of inconsistent even if you play, like, the full amount of cantrips. Oh, yeah, 100%. I've, I've never experienced a deck with, you know, 10-plus cantrips be so inconsistent. Like, Sneak and Show doesn't yeah. really lose to other decks. It loses to itself. You just uh, I mean, there, there are obviously a few decks that it struggles a lot against. True, but... true. But it just has this power level that it can steal games out of nowhere, but then sometimes it's just you're sitting there with a sneak attack in play, and then you have ten turns to draw literally any creature, and you just can't do it. Right. Anyways, um, yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to playing lands. I also wouldn't be opposed to playing Grixis Delver, and if... If I feel it's right, I'll play something like Checkpile or even uh, Blue White, whatever dot deck. <laughs> Blue White dot deck. Yeah. Yes. I like. We're still calling it Miracles, even though it uh, it's not really the same deck anymore. But it's still putting up results. I, I you know, I kind of wonder if Wizards made the wrong banning choice. Uh, I don't think they made the wrong ban choice. It's just that the Cantrip Shell mm-hmm. is so much better in a control deck than it is in a. It, it related to our previous point, I think the Cantrip Shell is better in a control deck than it is in a deck like Sneak and Show because you don't need to assemble two card combos. You only need to find particular cards at particular times. Mm-hmm. So it means you can also sandbag your Cantrips a little bit longer or set a predict, for, you know, for like raw cards or whatever. It's just the fact that you don't have to assemble two cards is much better, and the Cantrips synergize very well with Monastery Mentor. True. Yeah, that is a great point, that in these control shells, you don't have to be firing off these cantrips as soon as you draw them, whereas in, you know, the combo decks, you just want to find that combo piece as quickly as possible, or find that protection once you find the combo pieces, so definitely gives you more options. Uh, We've even seen, I don't know if you noticed, uh, but there was a Sneak and Show list the top eight had recently that was running predicts. (laughs) I saw that, and it sideboarded into a blue-red control deck. Yeah, the, the... Blue-red control gods, basically, Hazarad and uh, Karanos. So, that well, was... <laughs> my experience with Hazarad is that it's not a control card. No, it's very aggressive. It, it's a, well, you know it can't attack or block once you have one or less cards in hand, right? True. So that doesn't really uh, coincide with old mentality. The, the, the Karanos has made sense. The Hazarad 
did not really make much sense to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. Do you think it would have been better replaced with something like the uh, the Red Chandra? Uh, depends on... Are you talking about Torch of yeah, Defiance? Yeah, the, uh, the two red, red one. Uh, yeah, Chandra, Torch of Defiance. I don't think so. No. Um, I think that card is actually very good in the right deck in Legacy. I don't believe the shell for that is Sneak and Show. And the reason being is that... It, it it it's just it kind of doesn't do anything better than Jason Mind Sculptor would. True. Yeah, so it's it's you know better situated in a deck that doesn't have access to blue Yeah, like on a red stompy is the perfect home for that card because oh, yeah. there's no ways to get card advantage in that those colors really. Unless if you want to play something like Bottle Coyster or Co- Coercive Portal or something like that. Or like Sin Potter, you know, those sorts of cards. Um Chandra makes sense there because it gives you multiple angles to attack from. The emblem is actually extremely potent once you get it. But five damage is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Count to four. But yeah, yeah I, I don't think it made that much sense. It would make that much sense in the Sneak and Joe sideboard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this sideboarding into the control matchup, Do you is that kind of a strategy, not just for Sneak and Show, but, you know, in general? Do you, you know, I feel there's two schools of thought where... Some people like the idea of sideboarding into a completely different strategy, and other people think, you know, that's just a waste. If if you were going to sideboard into this other strategy, why aren't you just playing the strategy from the get-go? Uh, good point, and it's a question that's asked not just in Legacy, but in every format. Uh, good examples of this are me sideboarding in Tyros Tracker in almost every matchup for lands. Other examples are siding in a card like Warm Coil Engine in Old Fairies in almost every matchup. The reason you do this is because A, you're taking out different cards in every time, and B, your synergy cards tend to be weaker in post-board games. Mm-hmm. So to give another point, I, uh, I have often employed the strategy of sideboarding into a bigger deck as Delver in post-board games, not to be so tempo-oriented, but to try to uh, exploit the holes in my opponent's strategies by siding in cards that, are, cards that are only good against them. So it's sort of being a weird sort of control deck where all of my cards are good, so my cantrips are so much better versus them. Mm-hmm. So it's not so much about, you know, being tricky and fooling your opponent. It's, oh. it's more about just, you know, having a better matchup. If they're a half step above you in game one, you try and be a half step above them in game two. Yeah, and th- this comes up a lot in every format, I think, especially in standard. The current standard, you had to predict if your opponent was going small or big such as in the Red Mirror, and I think that was sort of tricky for people to figure out, because you want completely different cards if they're going big versus small. Like, a Pyroclasm type effect is really good if they stay small, but if they go big, you're going to draw a Pyroclasm and they're going to have like a 4-4 dragon, and that's just not a world you want to live in. Right. <laughs> so it's this is not just a legacy-only thing. It happens in every format, and determining what you should do versus what your opponent should do even if you have a sideboard plan set in stone, you should reevaluate once you've seen what your opponent has done in like game two. Yeah. I think sideboarding is probably one of the most difficult skills to learn in magic. Um, even people who I would say are very good at magic, I've, you know, seen them make sideboarding errors and it just it's so much to do with predicting what your opponent's gonna do, reading your opponent, and also just taking that decision and applying it to your own sideboard. This is something you have to do in, you know, three minutes. That's a very hard task for most people to accomplish. Right. Um, 
Part of it is I don't think it depends on the player, but I think often it's not a clear mistake for people to sideboard the way they do. It's just sometimes they might. The, the mistake is not their sideboarding. The mistake is assessing what role is being applied to each player in the matchup postboard. If that makes sense. Like so, actually, a great example of this is in limited. If your opponent has nothing but things that tough, punish one toughness things, you should try to sideboard almost all of them out, if possible. Uh, a good example of this is Splendid Agony from Amonkhet, which is a two and a black instant. You know, it puts two minus one minus one counters on one or two dark creatures. So if you sideboard a lot of your one toughness guys out, that card becomes much worse versus you. It's just things like that. You have to think about what happened in the game and what could happen. You know, it just try try to envision how the game is going to play out. I suppose it's kind of um, more advanced version of you know who's the beatdown. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Who's the beatdown was a great piece for its time. People have really evolved from that level of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's just sometimes the beatdown can shift in a matter of turns. It's not like a static roll throughout the the match. Right. It, suddenly I have like a, you know, I get like a 7-6 tireless tracker. I've become the beatdown as lands, even if that's not <laughs> traditional. True, true. You know, definitely going from, uh, you know, like a punishing fire control to, oh, I have a big fat fatty. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Awesome. Well, you know, you're also, last time we spoke, uh, you were saying you're, you know, dipping your toes, or not dipping your toes, but just really diving face first into uh, vintage, uh, getting ready for Eternal Extravaganza and Eternal Weekend. Uh, how does, right. how's kind of the, the new band and Restricted Shake affecting that? So, I, I find it pretty interesting. I would expect the decks to benef- benefit from this are Null Rod decks and, uh, outcome decks, and the reason being obviously restricting Thorn means there are less, a slight, slightly smaller amount of spheres going around. Another reason is if you expect outcome to become better as a result of that, Null Rod should also become better because of that. Mm-hmm. Because Null Rod hits, well, sort of hits shops, depends on their draw, obviously, and definitely hits outcome. Like, Null Rod is probably the best card versus outcome possible, besides Stony Silence. And the reason Stony Silence is better is that it doesn't get hit hit by Hercules Recall. Oh right. Yeah, it, it being an enchantment is actually much stronger than it being an artifact versus that deck. True. Hit by the uh, bounce all artifacts. Um, but real, really, it's it's been a wild, uh, wild, wild west so far. If you look at the deck list, like almost anything could happen. I think at uh, the first few live tournaments. Mm-hmm. Uh, personally, I'm a fan of Storm myself, but honestly, like. I'm not, like, really that confident that the deck will hold up that long. It's just a fun deck to try for now, and maybe it is that good. No one actually knows. You need to, you need to get, you need to test more and know you're rolling a lot of other matchups, I think. I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, the unrestriction, Yagamoth's Bargain. Uh, Have you seen any spicy news come out of that yet? So, I think one thing that people like to do that, so there's a question of how many bad cards a deck can sustain, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. A card like Academy Rector is almost the perfect example, uh, which has been mentioned a bunch with Yogmoth's Bargain. I think you need to be very careful to make sure that your bargain deck, once bargain is played, doesn't have too many cards to draw into that are bad. Because it actually is very possible for you to brick off of a bargain or a necro or something similar 
if you're not careful with your deck construction. Bargain less so because you get the cards immediately, but Necro, you have to decide that turn how many cards you're going to draw and you draw them during your end step. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't I don't really see Academy Rector being that much of a... Well, just because, you know, Academy Rector is three and a white, Yagmas Bargain is four black black, so you're only really getting a two-mana discount there, uh, plus you have to jump through the hoop of sacrificing the Academy Rector. Um, so, like, right. I mean, maybe if you're running the Academy Rector as, like, extra Yagmas Bargains, if for some reason your deck wants eight copies of Yagmas Bargain... But I don't really see it as a, so much a cheating into play, just because the effort you have to go through, uh, the hoops you have to jump through, it, it's almost not worth the uh, the mana discount. Right. Um, a bunch of you were suggesting show and tell alongside bargain. Mm-hmm. We quickly dis- discounted that idea because if you cast show, you put in bargain, they put in revoker. It is extremely bad for you. Oh yes, it's. I mean, it's the same problem yeah. as with the Grizzle Brands. <laughs> you know, they put in revoker. You know? Oh. That's actually less of a problem because the shop decks can't actually beat the 7-7 flying lifelink. True. Yeah, you just don't have the, the big beater now. Right. You just attack them three times and their deck can't do anything. Mm-hmm. It's just that particularly Revoker versus Bargain is extremely bad because then your card actually does nothing. Yep. <laughs> it has Null Rod's flavor text. That's what it Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> um, I forgot who I was talking to. I think it might have been Saffron Olive online, but... Uh, I really would like to see a Yagmoth's Bargain Children of Coralist deck pop up. Well, that comes back to my original point about not putting bad cards into your deck. Oh, I know, but I want it. I want the Children of Coralist. I understand the attraction of it. I think it's probably not good enough, if I had to guess. Have you... So, uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Last Wednesday, I was supposed to stream Vintage on Twitch with four, bar- four Bargain for Outcome Storm. Twitch was down, unfortunately, but we did 5-0 with uh, the basically 8-bomb deck. Oh, yeah. Nice. (laughs) So, basically, the idea behind that deck was the more bombs you have, you can just run Big Blue out of counterspells pretty easily, and then they'll eventually die. Mm -hmm. And it it worked pretty well. Um, Actually, I guess we had 9 bombs, because Necropotence counts as a bomb, too. Right. Yeah, we we just had a bunch of rituals in our deck instead of show and tells or anything somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. Just uh, just and, power it out as. Yeah, we had four dark rituals, two cabal rituals, a bunch of artifact mana. We even had defense grids and two defense grid, two Hercules recall main. I think that might be excessive because those are bad cards to draw off of bargain once it's in play. But I think some amount of those in the main deck is fine. Mm-hmm. And is it just a tendrils of agony win condition? Yeah, we have the Tinker bot in the board, but I actually generally don't like starting Tinker because it's it's actually better to Tinker for Memory Door a lot more times in this deck than it is White Steel. But Tinker is so bad versus an opposing blue deck. And why is that the case for uh, you know some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the format? It's just uh, it's an easy card to Power Blast or Fluster Storm. You know, it's it's kind of a liability to draw, and getting rid of your artifact mana is not really where you want to be in this deck. Right, just because you're essentially two for one in yourself, and there are just so many answers in the format for it. Uh, cute thing is, if you necro lock yourself, but you draw an outcome, you can just use the outcome to bounce your necro. Oh, that is good. <laughs> so you just that's get it off the board. That's up a few times in testing already, but uh, outcome says non-land, non-token permanent. So you cannot bounce tokens with it, which was a thing with Mentor that people, you know, came to realize. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it being able to bounce your skip your draw phase enchantments is actually relevant. 
nice. So, do you see yourself playing a bargain deck at Eternal Extravaganza or Eternal Weekend, or are you gonna you still leaning more towards a more established deck? Uh, it's certainly up on my high on my list of uh, decks to play. I just it's I was originally planning to play most streamlined mentor deck possible, but I'm not as thrilled about that with only one mentor in my deck as opposed to three or four. I actually kind of think four was too many a lot of the time because if you just drew two mentors and no like gas, wasn't actually very good. True. You didn't really have any way to, you know, snowball the condition. Right. right. So, you know, Last time we talked vintage on this cast, uh, there were some complaints that the format kind of felt stale with it just being a, a two-deck format with everything else being far below. Um, are you happy with these changes? Do you think Wizards made the right choice, or you know, do you think they should have done something different? So I I certainly don't play enough vintage to consider myself like an expert on it or whatsoever, but the people who I've talked to that do play a lot of vintage say that they were they were extremely excited by these changes because it's just a huge shakeup from Mentor being somewhat dominant and Shops maybe being a little bit too good. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they unrestricted bargain means there's another like avenue to pursue, which, honestly, if you want to punish a bargain deck, you can very, very, very well. So it's not like... It, I, I think maybe the format can handle having four, four bargains in it. Okay, so we'll kind of take it, see how it goes, but nothing too much to be worried about. Right, I mean, if if it ends up being a giant mistake, they can just restrict it again and not feel bad about it. <laughs> That's true. Hey, pull an old Gush. I went, how many times has yeah. Gush been restricted, unrestricted, and restricted again? <laughs> I want to say four, but don't quote me on that because I also don't really know for sure. <laughs> Oh man! So yeah, hold on to those uh, those copies of the Gush book. You know, we might we might have a use for them in the future. <laughs> I thought the use for them was to level out your table. That's <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, just kind of rules changes and Watsy shaking us all up uh, with the excellent previews, uh, it's kind of we've known about it for a while now, but they finally made it official. With the new Planeswalker rule, how Planeswalkers are now legendary. Yeah, yeah, that, okay, so when that rule got published, uh, Ari Lax, a good friend of mine in East West Bowl chat, told everyone in the chat, log on to Magic Online and buy all of the, in, in, I, I don't even know how to pronounce the word, <laughs> it's, it, it's the Cloud Keeper land from Kamigawa. He's, he just said, log on and buy all of those because they're going to go way up. And he was right, obviously. Is that the, the, uh, the stupid that, soul lands that can, like, yes. oh, my God, that card's so bad. <laughs> Ari thought about it immediately, and he's just like, yeah, you, you guys should just go out and buy all of them because they're probably a, a cent right now, and they'll probably go to, like, 75 cents. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it went to $20 in paper. Um, yeah, it, it it's a lot harder to uh, just... Oh, yeah, like, know, get those up because then people can just yeah. cancel orders. I No, I, I know what you're saying, how Magic Online, it's easier to take advantage of those. Yeah, Art... Our- Ari was just like, yeah, you should do this, and any other card that's related to Legends, uh, you should consider buying them up, but, like, Captain Sisse was the other one. Yeah, yeah, Captain Sisse had already spiked when uh, the Sheets had got spoiled a couple months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, because okay. she, she, she was, like, 2 $3, and then she went up to $20 uh, with the spoiling, <laughs> and then I think now that Wizards actually made it official, now people have been scouring, you know, uh, yeah all the old cards for it. But yeah, that I can't believe that land went up because 
that card was so bad. Like even even when it was in standard in the Legends Matter set, like that like it comes into play tapped, and oh, you have to pay two it, life. It, it did not matter. It did not matter in that format. We, we we played a bunch of that standard format. It did not matter. Yeah, that way. Yeah. So it, like it blows my mind. It's like oh now this is a twenty dollar card. It's like it wasn't good in a standard set where everything was a legend. It wasn't good enough then. What makes you think it's good enough now? <laughs> well, I mean planeswalkers are really powerful, and also they've started branching out, building other planes or other legendary permanents. Mm-hmm. For instance, you can just play like Heart of Karen and another thing on the same turn. That's not irrelevant. That's true. So do you think... And like, something like Karn Silver Golem maybe is relevant at some point, you know. There's just a bunch of weird things that it could be relevant with. It's just hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're... I, I assume you're talking modern, uh, just because there's a lack of, uh, you know, mana ramp in, of that style outside of, you know, the Tron pieces. Right. So you think this card's actually going to start seeing playing modern? I mean, I'm skeptical. I'm just saying, theoretically, it is possible that someone finds a shell where there's enough like reasonable legendary cards that you want to put in your deck. Like, there, there's actually a legendary enchantment from either Betrayers or Saviors, which is three and a white. It's called Day of Destiny. Mm-hmm. It's just legendary creatures you control get plus two plus two. Yeah, just an idea. Well, that that card was extremely good in block constructed. So, honestly, if there's a deck with the Cloud Keeper and a bunch of legendary creatures, I would not be surprised to see the Cloud Keeper that and that anthem in it. I'm just saying, like, it, it, it's hard to tell that if it's going to be good or not. Uh, you could always put it in a Gideon Tribal dot deck. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I've seen a bunch of people post about that. <laughs> so do you think this is going to kind of have any effect on Legacy uh, with Planeswalkers being legendary now? Do you think people are going to start jamming Jace Friends Prodigies next to their... Mind Sculptors and, uh, you know, all the uh, Liliana Last Hope with their Liliana of the Veils? Or do you think this isn't going to matter much? I actually think it will matter a lot, but not in the way that people envision. I think what will will happen is definitely in Modern, you'll see tons and tons of three mana Lilianas because three mana is such a cheap rate for a Planeswalker that could. So I I expect to see a bunch of, like, 2-2 splits instead of 4-0, 4-0, one way, or 3-1, or you know, whatever. Because Just because of the fact that if you draw 1-1 one one now, it's so much better. And in Legacy, what could potentially happen is, yes, J- Jace Finn's Prodigy might see a little bit more play, but you actually might see something like Jace Bellerin sneak its way back in. Ooh, back in the days when Jace Bellerin was just the most specific Vindicate of all time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not as bad as people think it is, frankly. Like, you get to draw two cards, then maybe just... Plus it once and then draw two more cards. Maybe it just gets power blasted. You know, it's it's honestly not that bad. Yeah, I mean, if you curve Jace, uh, uh, Baby Jace into Jace Mind Sculptor and they power blast Baby Jace, you're probably pretty happy. Yeah, you, yeah. Even just using it as bait. So okay. So do you think we're just we're gonna see just a lot more planeswalkers in general, or just that there's gonna be more variety of planeswalkers? Um, hard to tell for the first, but the second, I think will definitely be true. Just diversifying is a lot more valuable because if you draw one and one, it's just so much better for you because you can just deploy both and try to bury your opponent. And and for the questions that really matter, how do you feel flavor-wise? <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's a good question. A lot of the cards I've seen spoiled make me smile because they're just so ludicrous. 
Chris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like dinosaurs and the, the meat giant eater that kills all of the dinosaurs and Planeswalker. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's just it, it's just it is funny to me. Or uh <laughs> Uh, Bob Huang uh, posted. I, I loved the uh, the new dinosaur planeswalker. This card's Dino Dynamite. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> yeah, I I really like Exilin, uh just in general. I, I didn't get too into Amonkhet. I was never the biggest fan of like Egyptian mythology, but this Exilin so far is really pu- pulling at my flavor heartstrings. So I'm liking it. Um, have you noticed any cards in Exilin that you think might uh, break out into Legacy at all? You know. That that is actually a pretty good question. It's hard to tell, but there's there's a few general guidelines I look for a card in Legacy. It really has to be a cheap card most of the time because honestly, the way the format works, things that cost four or more have a really high high bar to go through mm-hmm. because of like Days Wasteland, you know, Spell Pierce and the like. And honestly, if it's something like Tarmogoyf by this point, even that's not really that good anymore. Like. You've seen Tarmogoyf so it get pushed out of the format, so even if it's cheap, I think it kind of has to have a unique effect. Like, Leobold was the perfect example of this. When when that card first came out, I'm just like, this card is ludicrously powerful. Mm. Like, it has twice as many words on it as it probably should. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, so, I, I we, like, we haven't seen the entire spoiler yet, so it's hard to tell, but I would say, as of right now, I'm not that um, optimistic that these cards will make it into Legacy yet. Mm-hmm. The the one card that is an exception is, is Peking Needle, as I like to call it. Yep. <laughs> That's what I was going to bring up. Uh, yeah, get taxi handle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it obviously it doesn't draw a card, but the fact that you can sort of pre-play it instead of for, waiting for them to play their Planeswalker makes it a lot more powerful. True. Yeah, I've uh, seen people brewing uh, decks that's, like, with the new Peeking Needle, also with, like, Ataxian Probe, Cabal Therapies, and Meddling Mages, uh, just trying to, like, uh, shut I, shut their opponents down. I don't think it's very competitive, but I think it's it's definitely a, uh, you know, rub the salt in the wound type deck. I, I think if you try that strategy for a bit, you'll realize the problem with it is that your cards, once, if, if, if they just sneak a few creatures past you, your strategy is extremely fragile. Mm-hmm. Like also, those strategies just have a pretty low power level because it's not like it's really easy to kill like a pithy you don't have an effect if you want to in Legacy. So you can't like guarantee that it's a lock. True, especially we've been seeing uh, cards like a braid sneak into a sideboard. Um... That's a card I like a lot, the, just because it answers the Pithing Needles and the Leovolds. Deal three damage to a creature or destroy an artifact. Um, yep. So, yeah. Poor Spider has been outdated so many times by this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just always always upgrading to the next one. Uh, that actually reminds me, there was the one that was spoiled. I forget what its name was, but it's I call it like the new Relic of Progenitus, where it's like one for an artifact when it comes into play. You get to scry one, and it has tap, exile, uh, I think it's both graveyards. Uh, it might be target graveyard. No, it, it is all graveyards. And the thing is, it's not actually a strict upgrade. Right. The reason being... Exactly. The, the, one of the strengths of Relic is that it's actually a slow grind on a deck like Lands or a deck that is focused on using its graveyard. Like, the fact that you don't have to pop it is actually a huge boon. You can just slowly eat away at their graveyard every turn, and it's hard for them to, like, delve an angler or something like that. And second, 
I think Scribe One is very good, but it is still worse than Drawing Card. That is true. So more of an upgrade at Tormon's Crypt, which Relic was an upgrade yeah. from. So the funny thing is, I think the only format Tormod's Crypt is played in is Vintage, because Crypt avoids misstep. Right. <laughs> so it's not necessarily an upgrade in that format versus the Dredge deck or you know some somewhere graveyard strategy. Yeah, uh, I I always want more cards to sneak into Legacy just because there's so many cool ones. But at the end of the day, you know they really have to be the cream of the crop to make their way in. Yeah, or like do something really, really like noticeably different that you haven't seen another card do. Like, well, when Monster Mentor was printed, it honestly took a lot, long time for it to sneak in to Legacy. True. Yeah, people are trying it out, and also it's just especially at first blush because I remember people with Treasure Cruise before Bob, uh, you know, won that Star City Games event. People were debating whether Treasure Cruise was even worth playing. And then, as soon as people started really playing with it, they realized, oh yeah, this card is not only good enough for Legacy, it's good enough to be banned in Legacy. Uh, yeah. I mean, it took a while for... I kind of think the timeline for the Delve cards being banned was weird. Once Cruise got banned, Dig should have been banned at the same time. Like, I think that was just a mistake for it not to go at the same time. True. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also I remember Deathrite Shaman being famous, that when it came out, a bunch of the finance people were like, yeah, this is probably going to be bulk. <laughs> now it's a dominating factor, you know, banned in modern. People are saying it might be banned in Legacy, I don't know about that. Um, actually, speaking of that, what, where do you fall on the Deathrite Shaman debate? I'm actually very anti-ban, unless if it's something like Mental Misstep or Treasure Cruiser or Dig Through Time. Mm-hmm. Those cards are so much better than anything else. And they, like, actually do warp the format. Deathrite, I think, is close to that point. But until, like, we can show that, like, I don't know, it, it, at the end of the day, it is a one-mana one-two. So maybe it's okay for it to stay, maybe not. But I'm basically very anti-ban unless, unless if it's mis- misstep, treasure cruise, dick through time level. Like, I was actually anti-top ban, too, frankly. I wanted them to hit something else from the deck, but, you know, I, obviously I don't control wizards and, Top is banned in modern because of time reasons as well, like not because of power level. Like, if frankly, if time was not a consideration for modern, they would top would be unbanned. I think they would just ban counterbalance instead. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I we have this conversation all the time. How top was very important for the non-blue decks of Legacy to have a way to have some you know reliable card selection. Um, do you feel you know coming from the perspective of a lands player? that you're just so much at you know uh, worse off than the blue decks? Mm, that's an interesting question. I don't think I was, but you also have to look at how the lands deck is built. It actually has a similar you know, number of ways to find the lands it needs, like four gamble, four crop rotation. Mm-hmm. Dredging gets gives you three looks at a time. Like it, it honestly was maybe a little bit worse at finding what it needed when it needed to, but... It, it wasn't that much worse, I think. Right, just because Lance has those tutor effects with gamble and crop rotation. Uh, but uh, I mean more from like the point of view of like a Nick Fit deck or a junk mid-range. Or, you know, a lot of people say that you just can't play fair decks in Legacy uh, without playing blue. Is that something you agree with, or do you think that you know they're just approaching it from the wrong way? Um, it, again, that's like a pretty complicated question. I don't want to say that you can't. You can't play your whatever deck 
think your deck will just be inherently less consistent and you just have to accept that that's the case. Um, I actually think one of the most like reasonably good non-brainstorm decks is Elves Combo. And the reason that it's good is because it tries to alleviate that problem by playing with Glimpse of Nature and, and Elvish Visionary. In fact, I think Visionary Symbiote is one of the most powerful engines in Legacy, especially versus another like grind deck, because you can just draw so many cards. Yeah. So it's not so much about you know trying to play blue at its own game. It's finding alternate ways to get that card advantage. You know, Glimpse of Nature, Crop Rotation, Gamble. Um, and I guess a lot of decks are just kind of searching for that. You know, they're looking for their version of Wirewood Symbiote of Elvish Visionary. You know, decks like uh, Eight Moon uh, or like Mog Stompy. Uh, you know, Mog Stompy probably has the benefit of, you know, having the Mog to tutor stuff up. But, you know, right. all these other decks that relied so heavily on Sensei's Divining Top, like Nick Fit, are just kind of ha- hanging out to dry looking for an alternative. I mean, Sylvan Library is sort of a reasonable alternative. And. Actually, Sylvan Library in some ways is better than Top in some scenarios, especially if you expect your opponent to cast a lot of Swords of Postures versus you. You can actually get like a bunch of cards off of that. Mm-hmm. Well, so I've, I've been talking to a lot of my friends who, who really heavily rely on the non-blue fair decks, and their problem with Sylvan Library is it's not an immediate effect. You play Sylvan Library, and then you have to wait until your next turn in order to really take advantage of it. And that's, that's what they, their biggest complaint with it is that they just don't have a way to immediately uh, kind of sculpt their hand, sculpt the top of their deck at all in order to find what they need. I mean, on the flip side, top eats up a ton of mana and doesn't really get you card advantage. It only gets you card selection. True, true. There's no perfect answer in Legacy. It's all about just finding the right answer for the right situation. Awesome. Well, uh, we want to get in. We got quite a bit of listener questions. We want to start tackling them? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so... Right off the bat, uh, Richard wants to know, what's the best card to hose the meta right now, and why is it Blood Moon? Mm. That's a, I've actually had this debate with a few people. All right. Blood Moon is extremely potent card, A, if your opponent's not prepared for it, and B, if the Blood Moon player is on the play. True. And the reason I say that is it's one of those cards that's extremely vulnerable to Days or Spell Pierce from a Delver deck. And since a lot of the the most popular Delver deck has a bunch of Gitaxian probes, it's easy for them to kind of know that it's coming. Like, obviously, if Blood Moon resolves versus most Delver decks, it's almost good game, no questions asked. The Your outs to that are, like, casting Pyromancer and a bunch of bolts. That, that's not a good recipe for success. But at the same time, for a Blood Moon player to play turn one Blood Moon consistently, you, you have to, like, assess how likely that is. And frankly, it's not as likely as people think it is. Like, let's put it in a classic shell. You have eight soul lands, right? So you're like eight out of 60 to draw one of those in your opener. I'm, I'm like guesstimating, obviously. It's more complicated than that. You have to use something called the hypergeometric distribution to calculate precisely. But say eight out of 60 to draw one of those, eight out of 60 to draw a blood moon effect, and say like eight out of 60 to draw, you know, a spirit guide or a lotus petal something like that. So you're 8 out of 60 cubed. That's not actually very good odds. Right. Get to on Blood Moon. I think it's just that what actually happens is people mulligan for that, so it becomes a little bit more likely. And then also, you know, if they keep 7, then you're going to expect to get Blood Moon, you know. 
then you should consider mulliganing if you're on the draw, if you know the matchup, or so forth. But yes, Blood Moon, turn one on the play, versus a large portion of the format, is extremely potent. That is my answer to that question. So, coming from it, uh, from the Sneak and Show player perspective, a lot of Sneak and Show players, uh, myself included, have actually been cutting our Blood Moons, because uh, right now in the meta it doesn't feel as great, because realistically, like you said, you're not playing Blood Moon turn one. And Blood Moon's potency goes way down each turn you don't play Blood Moon. Um, and the reason why we find this is because with all these Delver decks, uh, especially packing Deathrite Shaman, and the Sneak and Show decks just not having an answer for it, what we'll often find happen is we'll play a Blood Moon on turn 2 or turn 3, usually on turn 3, they're usually able to get a fetch land in their graveyard or a Deathrite Shaman in play, and they're able to then use that land to cast a Delver of Secrets. And if we're also, you know, when we play Blood Moon, that usually shuts us off of our cantrips, which means we're less consistent to find the combo pieces that we need. Just having a single Delver in play is enough of pressure on us that we're not able to combo off in time. Um, so we've we've been finding just with. Uh, a lot of decks also packing one or two basics uh, for the Blood Moon uh, decks, and also just Deathrite Shaman giving them that one or two mana out that they need to play a threat and stick it on the board. Uh, just makes it so that uh, the Blood Moon's almost like a trap card for us at this point. Yeah, I think that that is a good point. In a deck like Sneak and Show, where you have like virtually no removal, it's a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Because all they need is it, one creature. If you're a deck that's like specific designed to be a control deck using Blood Moon with, like, Source of Plowshares or Lightning Bolt or something similar. Mm, I think better. the effect of it, Yes, it's much better in a deck like that. And so maybe it is correct for uh, the Sneak and Show players to not play Blood Moon. Or if you do play Blood Moon, consider also sideboarding in two copies of Grimoire Mancer at the same time. Right. I, I've seen what I actually kind of like in those scenarios is siding board into Blood Moons and then loading up on, like you said, the Grim Lava Mancer, but also uh, Sudden Shock and now a Braid. Just having those removal options to get rid of the Delver of Secrets and the Deathrite Chums that they, uh, they're able to sneak in under the Blood Moon. Right. Awesome. All right, moving on. Joseph wants to know, uh, we kind of already covered this, but just your serious thoughts on the ubiquity of Deathrite Shaman. Yeah, obviously, like, I think Watsy sort of regrets designing it the way that it's designed. Originally, I think it was... Why was it a 1-2? There was some card in the format. I think Ewok Trickery is why they made it a 1-2. Oh, really? <laughs> Damn you, Ewok yeah, Trickery. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to remember, but Ewok Trickery is also in RTR, so I think they made it a 1-2 to just not get like killed by it immediately. So, But I, I think if you asked... A lot of bot team boys, they say they they would probably say that they regret the card as it exists now, but obviously it exists, and I think it's just within tolerable bounds for it to exist in Legacy. Mm -hmm. I think it, it would have been fine. They they could have just made it a zero two. Zero two would be nice. I think that would fix a lot of problems. But uh, I, especially when it first came out, um, the big problem was you had these like uh, Dark Confidant, which has almost completely disappeared from the format. And mm -hmm. young pyromancer decks just being shut down by a single deathrite shaman on the defense. You know. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's not really shutting it down. It's still a trade. It's and... still a trade, but I mean, just also like uh, taking care of the uh, young pyromancer tokens, all the one ones. It's not as much, you know, now. But I just remember when deathrite shaman first came out, that being a very frustrating scenario. That you know, you have to wait right. until you get this stupid one mana creature. 
Right. Nice. All right. So uh, Nathan wants to know uh, what lands could be printed that would help your combo matchup. <laughs> um, every like possible design for a land that I can think of, they'll never ever print. <laughs> it's just too good. I think that the, the the land that I would want the most is something like mm, probably a land that says uh, players cannot cast more than one spell per turn, and like literally has no other text. <laughs> Oh, like a, what? Uh, what is it, Academy? Uh, Arcane Lab. Arcane Lab, that's what it is, yeah. <laughs> slash Roll Ball, slash... Yeah, it's an effect that's been yeah. showing up from yeah. time to time. They're, they're never going to print a card like that because it's just... It, it's obvious what it's trying to do, and it's not interesting design whatsoever. True. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's something a lot of players, when they kind of come up with cards in their head, really don't think about, you know, is this card actually interesting design, or is it literally just, we shoehorned this in here to do this specific thing? Right. I mean, so sometimes they do print, like, heavy-handed answers like that, mm-hmm. but, like, Crook of Condemnation came way too late in the standard format to deal with things it was supposed to deal, but they they they, they had designed it to sort of hose, like, Delirium and Emrakul and those cards, just by that point that the deck didn't really exist anymore because they, they had already banned Emrakul. True. Uh, so this next one, I don't know if there's a backstory behind this, but Min wants to know, why do you hate Min so much? Uh, <laughs> that's a <laughs> interesting question. The answer is I don't hate him. I just don't... I like people to have reasons for their magic opinions. <laughs> uh, you, heard it, you heard it here first, Min. <laughs> uh... Good friend here. Actually, why did I even say that? Not a good friend, Balduvian Bear Salso. <laughs> <laughs> From terrible to hot garbage, how is Jerry at podcasting? <laughs> Hashtag fire Jerry. <laughs> well, well, again, I don't listen to podcasts, so I am not a good judge of that. <laughs> way to take uh, way to take the easy way out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, so Anthony, uh, says, uh, what do you feel is the best sideboard tech against your deck? Okay. Again, this comes back to the question of sideboarding and how your deck actually functions. Depending on the deck, I would recommend very different cards. Okay. Uh, in a deck like, I don't know, like a Delver deck, you, what, it, what is, you have to imagine how the game's going to play out. What is usually going to happen is you'll get to a point where, You'll have a, a bunch of aggression. They'll have maybe some defense and maybe the ability to make a Merrill Lodge. So Diabolic Edict is extremely potent. Same for Surgical Extraction, but not for the reasons people think. And when I play Delver versus Lands, more often than not, I will not go after their Loams. I'll go after Maze of it or something similar like that to take away all of their defense. Huh. I've never really, yeah, that's a great idea. I've never approached it from that uh, point of view of getting rid of their Maze of Iths or, you know, if they're running the Punishing Fires. You know, Punishing Fires, yeah. I think, is probably a bit more obvious, but I've never really thought about, uh, you know, surgicaling the Maze of Iths as the way to, to break through. Uh, I mean, I've played a lot on both sides. The problem is, if without a Maze of it, Grimmatic Angler almost always kills you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Just... Uh, what about, like, would you also go after a Glacial Chasm, or is that something you don't worry about? Um, depends on the board state. Sometimes you can force them into a position where a Chasm will do nothing because of death rate. Like, I, I, I hate giving fast, like, fast rules, because so much of Legacy is about analyzing the current board state and determining what's going to happen within the next few turns that 
the answer often changes like within a turn or two. Right. You know, it could have been the right answer on turn three, but by the time turn five rolls around, it's it's no longer the route that you should take. Yeah. I will not surgical maze of it if my hand is young pyromancer hand because it's not going to actually do very much. True. True. So like I I was just bringing up the maze of it thing to give an idea that maybe you can like not just like tunnel vision on surgical loam because. A lot of times they can beat you without a loam. Like frankly, I've I've won a ton of matches with my loams and my depths both surgical, because like I can punch and fire off their creatures, or I can like defend myself with Maze of Ith and like just take over in other ways. Mm-hmm. So, is there any like sideboard cards that you're particularly afraid of? Though it kind of sounds like you know <laughs> everything has its place, but nothing's you know backbreaking. Right. Uh, I mean, like if if you're the correct deck and you can. Force him to play early enough. Blood Moon is one of the best cards. Mm-hmm. Not uh, like uh, that's obviously true. Like it's very clearly true. But a lot of decks that play Blood Moon, such as like a controlling sort of deck, it's not that good versus lands because if you give them enough time, they can just cross and grip the thing and just like do whatever they want then. But if you're like an aggressive deck, maybe a deck with a bunch of like prison pieces, basically Moon Stompy. That's probably the worst matchup. Okay. <laughs> so, like, yes, it it again, context matters so much that it, I, I would hesitate to say that Blood Moon is the answer for all the decks because it's not, but for that deck, it obviously very clearly is because it can get it out faster than other decks. Cards that are probably underappreciated are cards like Pithy Needle, but again, you have to use it very very specifically. Sometimes I'll be correct to Pithing Needle Maze of it and not the Thespian stage, like I was mentioning. Yeah, exactly. All right, so like like so often is the answer, it's more complicated. There's no easy way out, people. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Everyone's just looking for that magic bullet answer. <laughs> no, magic is way too complicated for it to have a simple answer. And frankly, if it had a simple answer, I think the game would not be that good. Right, yeah. It would, people would lose interest with it. Right. Alright, so moving on, uh, Bryant Cook wants to know, what's your opinions on Thalia's Epic Storm versus Thalia's Epic Pile? I don't know if there's something going on behind that. <laughs> That's sort of an inside joke. There's a, there's a guy who uh, loves death and taxes. Uh, he's friends with Bryant, so the fusion of their decks is Thalia's Epic Storm. <laughs> Excellent. And, it, it has the same abbreviation. That's why it's funny. Ah, I see. But I, I would probably go with Thalia's Epic Storm. Thalia's Epic Storm over Thalia's Epic Pile. All right, good. Yeah. Uh, Follow up question: Bryant wants to know: Do you pour cereal or milk first? <laughs> oh man, I haven't eaten cereal in years, but I think I would. Hmm, I think I would pour the milk first. I like how this is the question you had a confident post about. <laughs> <laughs> Because I haven't eaten cereal in years, like, <laughs> frankly. It's true. I, I, you know, I, I think I grew out of uh, cereal once I moved out of my parents' house. Just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, what's with all these food questions, people? Uh, Rob wants to know, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? Hmm. That's a very philosophical question. <laughs> I guess I'll go with, yeah, it's a sandwich. Yeah. Excellent. Good choice. Good choice. <laughs> All right, back to the serious questions here. Uh, Scott wants to know, he's got a couple follow-up questions, but how viable is a lands build without ports? Oh, it's, um, well, so 
again, a complicated question, but the answer is it's very viable. You just have to be comfortable with the fact that a lot of your post-war games are going to be weaker because the way you play without port is to play four ghost quarters. And without playing... Basically, you're assuming access to your graveyard every game if you're on this plan. The reason is port can sit and play and keep tapping their lands down, whereas you sort of have to recur the ghost quarters and wastelands repeatedly for it to run your opponent out of basic lands. So you're basically saying, you're making a statement that I can figure out how to beat Graveyard Gate more often than not. Mm -hmm. Uh, His follow-up question is... uh... Um, Also, sorry, related to that point, I forgot. Port is better with spheres than Ghost Quarter is, because a lot of the decks you want to sphere out have basic lands. True. So it's sort of harder to prison them out with Ghost Quarter and spheres than it is with ports and spheres. Gotcha. And then uh, his same, he has same question. What about with uh, punishing fire grove the burn willows? How important is that to the deck? I think that is extremely important. If you don't play that aspect of the deck, I think it's difficult to beat death rates with this deck. Gotcha. Yeah, that, and that's probably a big problem for the deck. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of think that is non-negotiable, but I know Jody has slightly different opinions, and hence he only plays two punishing fires. I kind of think that it is a mistake, but. He he is very good with the deck, so he can afford to give up percentage points. Whereas I think most people should not do that. Mm. Um, and the reason why he's asking that is so he's a longtime twelve post player, so he has the tabernacle already, but he doesn't have groves or ports, and he's wondering which he should acquire first. Uh, I I think the P fire grove thing is not negotiable. Not negotiable, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, and then he also brings up, uh, we saw this kind of make waves in the finance community, Drop of Honey. Are you running it in your sideboard? What do you think of it? So, funny thing is, the week before Vegas, uh, me, Jody, and a few other people discovered a Japanese list from one of their tournaments that had Drop of Honeys in the sideboard. So we decided to test online. And every time it got cast, it got counterspelled, or it killed, like, three creatures. So we decided it was good enough, so I found two copies for 70 apiece. I only played one in the GP because I wasn't sure how necessary it was, but I own two copies personally. I think it is a good card, but if you don't want to pay $400, it is not, you know, it is not... There there are cards you can play instead of it. Oh, yeah. I remember having it be played against me in, like, 2012. I'm like, huh, this card's good, uh, but I don't want to pay $50 for this card. I don't need this card. (laughs) Now I'm kicking myself. (laughs) Right. But yeah, I agree. I think Drop of Honey is very good. I just don't think it's $400 good. Like, Drop of Honey is the type of card you buy when you already have pretty much everything else you could want in Legacy. Right. It's similar to Moat in that regard, I think. <laughs> Man, I know that's an unintentional dig or not, but I <laughs> well, I just picked up a Moat and everyone was making fun of me for it on the cast a couple episodes uh, ago. Yeah. <laughs> Moat got a lot worse. Oh, yeah, it did. The, the primary use of Moat primary use of mode for it was Miracles versus Eldrazi Stompy. Um, then all the Eldrazi Stompy players got smarter and start, started sideboarding Sowers and Ulamogs, so mode wasn't even that good anymore. So It's true. But sometimes you just want your really expensive toys that you can never actually use. <laughs> right. Uh, so moving on here, Ryan wants to know, uh, what fair decks are you least happy to play against and why? Um, I guess... If we're going to talk about as lands, any deck that contains the Knight of the Relic Query. Nah. And the reason is, 
you cannot kill that thing with punching fire very reliably. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible. Uh, I don't typically play main deck Bajukabog, so it, it really is hard to kill it. If, if you have a Bajukabog in your main, what you can do is punching fire it, then crop rotate for Bajukabog, and there's no way for them to keep their knight alive. No, that's a good play. Uh, his follow-up question is, why you so fly? He... Uh, <laughs> because... Fruit flies like a banana. Ooh, good, good answer. Good answer. <laughs> uh, Jeff wants to know: tra- Tireless Tracker actually just better than Knight of the Reliquary? Uh, more of a lateral comparison. Actually, Knight is one of my favorite cards. I just think the deck that it goes in, Knight Knight is the best card in that deck, and its other cards are much worse. So that's why I'm not a huge fan of the card in Legacy, but. I do think Knight is an extremely good card. Mm-hmm. Tracker Tracker is a very different card and requires, well, basically requires you to have a lot of mana in your deck too. I actually think the cards go very well together, frankly. Yeah, I, I agree. I played uh, Agrolome for a while, and that really solidified my love of uh, Knight of the Reliquary. Agrolome kind of feels like it, it feels like it wants to be doing a lot of the same things as lands, but just attacks from a diff- completely different basis. Um, just... Yeah, it's laterally different. I wouldn't say one is better than the other right. either. Yeah. Um, Matt Dawson wants to know, uh, what are some common mistakes people make when playing against lands and, uh, uh, and when playing the deck? Okay, most common mistake playing against lands, I think, is wastelanding Thespian Stage when there's a basic land on the, the table. Oh, yeah, they just copy the, the basic land and then you can't uh, wasteland just fizzles. Playing Aslan's not mulliganing aggressively, aggressively enough for an Exolarit. I basically do not keep seven card hand, don't have access to an Exolarit. Because, like, even, even a Delver deck can goldfish you by, like, turn four or five if you don't do any accelerating. So you're going to lose those games more often than not in your supposedly good matchup. True. Alright, uh, I really like Joel's question here. Um, so he wants to know, is lands the best Dark Depths deck, or is Dark Depths just the most efficient win condition for it instead of relying on Punishing Grove or other man lands? Um, I think without Dark Depths, you can almost never beat a combo deck in game one, is the actual answer. I think versus a lot of fair decks, it's okay to shave on Dark Depths because you need to grind them out, especially if they have a bunch of Swords to Postures, Flicker Wisps, you know, Caracas. I'm mostly describing the matchup versus DNT where I almost never turbo 2020 them. Mm-hmm. But basically, basically, Dark Depths, the reason to play nearly the maximum amount of those, both of those cards is to try to race a combo deck. Gotcha. So it sounds like you're kind of falling more on the side of, you know, Dark Depths is just the most efficient win condition for lands. Yeah, but I mean, like, there are situations where you can't do that. The most common situation where you can't do that is there's burn, and you have to keep Glacial Chasm in play at all times, so you have to punch and fire them 20 times. Okay. Yeah, so just the time constraint as well. Well, yeah, I I mean, the time constraint is a thing, but frankly, if you are if you know what your deck needs to do, it's not that difficult to like punch and fire them three times a turn and still have enough time to finish the match. Mm-hmm. That's true. Like, what, what you actually have to do by that point is start using your stages to copy your red-green lands, like Tigas. Oh, because you have more access to red mana. Yeah, you don't actually have enough red green mana in your deck to punch fire them more than three times per turn without copying Taiga or Grove of the Burn Mm -hmm. 
Nice. All right. Uh, Joseph wants to know what spicy haymakers do you have in your maybe board? Oh, that that's a great question. <laughs> before, before Miracles got banned, I was experimenting with a lot of the new planeswalkers, namely Nissa Vital Force and Chandra Torture Defiance. Yeah, we've been seeing Nissa's pop up in the green. She's been doing real. I think she's even been like popping up all elves lists. The the. The Japanese lists that I remember from Grand Prix Chiba where Miracles was legal, the Elves list at top eight had two Nissa Vile Force in its main deck. Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's extremely good with Guy's Cradle because it makes it a creature, and the, then you can abuse it with Symbiote and Queer and Ranger on that turn. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. So there, there's a screenshot of someone on Magic Online making, like, I don't know, like 50-plus mana on one turn, and... Like, their opponent got completely destroyed by the Nissa Vital Force. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> so, yeah. Nissa Vital Force, so, in your maybe board, not in your, your actual board yet? Not currently. I would I would have to see a lot of four-color check pile with a ton of, like, anti-Dark Depths technology. To those. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, some of these we already answered, so I'm going to skipping ahead a bit. But uh, Tom wants to know, how do you feel about the wish board with devastating games? Have you tried that at all? Yeah, I have. I'm actually friends with Dave Long, who popularized that uh, build. Um, D Dreams is at its best versus Death and Taxes post board. So what almost always happens is they get to a point where uh, they have a ton of creatures out, but they might have like a Mother of Rins or two. And you can get to a point where you have Tabernacle. If you Devastating Dreams them uh, for all of their lands, Tabernacle will just kill all of their creatures on their upkeep. Okay, so... So I, I think Dreams is very good. And in fact, I have sort of a love affair with this card from a long time ago. <laughs> in original Extended, you could play with Terravore and Devastating Dreams. Oh, yeah. Oh, that feels... <laughs> That's actually the original Acrolome to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess so. for me, like, that's even going further back, because when I think of original, I think of, like, the Countryside Crusher builds, but, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, Crusher came later. Yeah, so that that's, like, way before. Fight. Yeah, so, yeah, the the origination of the deck. Yeah, with, it had Devastating Dreams, Terror Wars, Dark Confidants. Uh, at one point, it had Wild Mongrels, because that that's actually what originally made it aggro, was the Wild Mongrel. Mm -hmm. Get those beaters in yeah. Um, Marcus wants to know what are the odds of you discussing statistics. Uh, I would say pretty high. We did. <laughs> From a patient standpoint, it's 100 percent because we already did it. Yep, there, I mean, it's almost like 200 percent now. <laughs> That's not how statistics work. <laughs> and he follows yeah. it up with just random high tide question. Do you, have you played high tide in the past? So the the year uh, before. New Phyrexia got printed. I spent a summer playing High Tide and winning a dual land almost every weekend with it. Really? I think it is really not very good. <laughs> it should have sailed. <laughs> that, that summer was extremely profitable for me to play High Tide with. Uh, the, when I played that deck, I would actually side out a Candelabra in almost every matchup. Mm -hmm. The reason being, people love to side in Pithing Needle and Name. Candelabra of Thanos, and then there will just be zero in my deck. <laughs> there you go. Just make people board in, you know, do-nothing cards. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. 
Uh, Tony, I, I guess Tony's been watching your streams a lot. Um, you've been testing out a lot of spicy legacy brews on Magic Online. Uh, which of those brews would you play over lands if you left the lands deck at home? Uh, I don't know which brews he's referring to, but I think the most competitive decks are the ones I'm most likely to play. So some sort of modified knight, Robin Nad, Excavator deck would be high up there. Grixis Delver are very high up there. And probably the Mentor Daisicles deck. Have you, speaking of Excavator and Knight, have you seen the new Maverick Death and Tax hybrid decks that are running like four Ghost Quarter, four Wasteland, Knight of the Reliquary, Rune Map, uh, Horizon Canopies, and Aether Vials with like like more of a Death and Taxes package? Um, I've been seeing those pop up, and that deck looks super interesting. I think I had a version of that deck. I don't know how close it was to my version, but it, it seems, I don't know, it seems pretty good. Like, it's it's hard to build it correctly because it's so finicky. And again, this related to the question of having card selection. I think the numbers, making sure you have the right number of each of those cards is very difficult. True. Nice. Uh, Jonathan wants to know, what happened to natural order decks? Where'd they all go? Well, Elves is the best natural yeah. order deck. By far. But what happened to and like, I, no bands, no rug? Like, we used to see it pop up as lighter decks. Oh, so the no rogue thing was basically only Reed who played it <laughs> to answer that question. No Bant, its strength was that Countertop was really good in the deck, but you can't really play that anymore. And also Terminus, I think, sort of invalidated Natural Order to a fair degree. But like you could see a resurgence of it now, but the problem is I don't, I don't think Natural Order is a good card versus most of the Delver decks either. True. I mean, you are too... For- so, like, so originally... Uh, originally when Natural Order, like Rug and Bant existed, it didn't have to play against the Streamline Delver deck, really. Like, there was Threshold, but it's nowhere near as, like, Streamlined as potent as it is now. Yeah, that's true. So, it just, you know, cards, just sometimes they don't they don't measure up anymore. You know, cards come and go, and sometimes they just they can't make it in the new meta. And it's, it doesn't even feel like anything replaced Natural Order. It's not like we got a better Natural Order printed. It's just uh, the meta just shifted yeah. away from it. Yeah, well, so over the past, like, I would say seven years, Legacy got a lot more efficient. People started tightening up their deck lists a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's basically the demise of Natural Order in every deck, except for Elves. And it's also, if you're going to play Natural Order, why don't you just play Elves? <laughs> yeah, that is very true. Like, it just dominates all of the other Natural Order decks, I think. Yeah. That's also, I think, the bigger thing, too, is Natural Order was always using to go get Progenitus. And now Progenitus isn't as good of a creature as it once was. You know, now we have Emrakul and Grizzlebrand. If you're going to be cheating big fatties into play, there are better things to cheat in, in now. Right. Uh, taking a little bit of a lighthearted approach, Wilson wants to know, what's your favorite dog breed and why? <laughs> The answer is Beagle, because I love Snoopy. <laughs> Good answer. All right. <laughs> um, so Lee wants to know, which deck with a small percentage of the meta is underplayed slash undercompetitive or competitive? I guess which which deck doesn't see as much play that you think should see more? Oh, that's a good question. I think, hmm, I would say Ancient Tomb D&T. Which is the Envelson build. Yeah, the big Thalia with, like, Thalia, Heretic, something. Something Heretic. Heretic. Yeah. So, kind of big, big death and taxes. Uh, yeah. 
Nice. Any particular reason, or just like, you'd like to see more? I think the reasons to play that deck are Eldrazi Displacer is pretty good, and Thalia is pretty good. And plus, it makes it so you can sideboard in a bunch of Chalice of the Voids post-board. Without that, I don't think you can play Chalice really that well. And just like the mana is really good with equipment, frankly speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to just power out those costs. Uh, yeah. Difference. Uh, I almost feel like as a sneak and show player, that big Thalia deck is almost a bit more uh, annoying to play against because uh, they'll also yeah. they'll run like the Eldrazi Displacers, and that thing can be a nightmare for uh, for sneak and show. I think at certain points in the game, you can't even win through it, frankly. No, yeah, they they definitely have ways to lock you out. If they have six mana, you just die, I think. Yeah, just straight up. Um, Plus also, you know, Thalia makes sneak attack that much worse, just because they come into play tapped. Um, So yeah, yeah, I I think that deck should see more play as well. Actually, no, I don't think that deck should see more play. I don't think that deck should see any play and let the Steak and Show players have their... (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, Ben has a good question here. Uh, How does a losing streak affect you when you don't win for a period of time? And, you know, how do you keep a positive mindset to push through it? That's a good question. Everyone goes on losing streaks, no matter how good you are. I, I know people certain unnamed platinum pros who've doubted themselves within the last year. thing is, you have to realize that, that it is, even if you are favored in a matchup like 66-33, you, you, it is very possible for you to just hit the 33% like six times in a row. Um, being assassination, I accept that this happens and just realize, A, be honest about what you're doing within the game. Try to see if you've made any mistakes. If there are no mistakes within game, See if there are any deck construction errors. And after that, ask your friends, have I made any mistakes recently? If so, what are they? And after that, if, you, if you've done all of that and you can be honest with yourself, you can accept it as consistent bad luck for a short period of time. Mm. So it's, it's I, important to take those steps so you're just not you know, arbitrarily blaming bad luck every time. Right, but, right. But it's also important to realize... You know, sometimes things aren't in your control. Right. Nice. All right. So just kind of zen yourself. (laughs) Uh, Only a couple left here. Patrick wants to know, pineapple on pizza? (laughs) Do you you think fruit belongs on cheesy goodness? Honestly, I would say it depends on the chain. I've had some good ham and pineapple pizza in my life. Yep. That's my answer. All right. Cool. (laughs) Good. (laughs) <laughs> um, Scott wants to know what are the pros and cons of lands versus multicolored depths decks like Kenan Haas's Jund and have you thought about playing smallpox uh, well that's again a very complicated question you're suggesting a black flag card yeah <laughs> I mean so the Kenan the, the Haas deck I've seen that guy around and I've seen his deck list I can't say that I've ever played enough with the deck to say how it operates. But my impression of the deck is that it's a Jund deck. It's like a Jund, like, Loam deck, not a Jund lands deck. Mm-hmm. So they operate very differently. Right. Is my impression. So it... I guess Nether Spirit and Loyana of the Veil and Smallpox, uh, those changes likely make him much better versus combo and, like, semi-mirrors. I think it probably makes him worse versus decks that are, like combo decks probably and maybe even the lands mirror probably in game one is not that great mm, nice 
And last question here. Thoughts on Living Wish in Lands? And then Jonathan followed up Living Wish in general. <laughs> um, well, thing is, crop rotation is like Living Wish, frankly. Uh, I mean, like, obviously it's not the same, but because Living Wish can fetch out good creatures like Excavator or whatever, I don't think you want more ways to find lands and just... Just having creatures in your deck in game one, essentially, is sort of a liability because generally they have a bunch of creature removals while sitting around doing nothing. So, like, trying to Living Wish for an Excavator in game one doesn't sound that good to me. Obviously, like, there are situations where it'd be really good to Living Wish for something like Phyrexian Revoker to name, like, LED or something similar like that. But I think in general it's probably not good enough. It also requires you to spend two mana to try to assemble your combo, which slows you down a turn versus combo decks. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't really like it that much in lands. What about just kind of in general? Do you think those detriments carry over to other styles of deck as well? I've seen a really weird um, uh, blue-green Omnitel version. Eureka Tell, I guess, is the right name for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you cast Loving Wish, your opponent died. It got... Um, there's an obscure card from Invasion Bot called Sparkcaster. Yep. Do you know what it does? Is that the one? It's the Goblin. Uh, the uh, tap it. No, no it's not. It's a different one. It's two red and a green for five three. It has gating. I don't know if you know what gating is. Uh, that's you have to like bounce a creature of the same color. Yeah, but also when it comes in play, it deals one damage to a target player. Oh, so it's like the old Cavern Harpy Brain Freeze combo, so it just bounces itself over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, so what is so it's what is it? Two red green? Yeah, it's two red green, but honestly the casting cost doesn't yeah. matter once you have, once you have omniscience it's in play. So I have seen a cool like blue green Eureka Tell deck that has that as its kill condition instead of like Cunning Wish for like Fire Mind's Foresight. Basically Sparkcaster is really stands for that version. And I think it has cards like Bosejun and Sideboard to Living Wish for to force through the Eureka or Show and Tell. Mm-hmm. So that, that that is like a deck I've seen that has Living Wish that I think is kind of cool. I'm not, not sure like how good it actually is, but it's definitely cool. Nice. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I love that. I mean, when I first got into Legacy, one of my first decks was uh, a Lurin with Cavern Harpy and just bouncing the Cavern Harpy over and over again to Brain Freeze the opponent. So that's always a style of deck I can get behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good old gating. I wish they would bring that effect back, though I definitely can see that, you know, having some broken potentials in it if they print more cards with that uh, that style. Awesome. Well, yay, thanks so much for coming on, Jarvis. We got we got scoops coming up. Uh, anyone you wanted uh, to thank or anything you wanted to plug? Uh, I want to plug the fact that I do stream a bunch of magic, usually on Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from... 6.30 p.m. Eastern to whenever. It's not always Legacy, but generally we have a good time and hang out, and I'm always happy to answer questions in my Twitch chat about Legacy. Yeah, definitely. We'll uh, we'll throw the uh, Twitch link in our uh, show notes, so if people want to check it out, definitely recommend uh, giving the stream a view. Awesome. Anyone else? Yeah. Um. I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of people that I could thank over the years, but the list would be like <laughs> hundreds and hundreds long. The Academy Award music. Basically, anyone, that, anyone that's uh, helped me out in my, I guess, nascent career, I would probably thank. But the list is just way too long, so 
I feel like I would do a disservice if I don't list all of them, so I'm not going to list anyone. <laughs> there we go. That's my that's my that's my usual answer to take the to take the way out. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I definitely wanted to thank you, drivers. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I also want to thank Lawrence for putting us in contact, uh, and also uh, to all the listeners who bought the raffle tickets for the Steve Beats Cancer Charity uh, Drive. You know, we raised over three hundred dollars for that. Uh, still got more in the pipeline, so thanks everyone for all your generosity. Uh, so thanks for yeah, anytime, yeah, anytime you want to come on, talk some legacy or just anything, you're you're more than welcome. Um, if uh, so. Uh, besides uh, Twitch, anywhere else people can get a hold of you? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, I am on Twitter, and you can find the handle pretty easily. There's not many drivers to use that play Magic. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, sorry, listeners, that you didn't get to hear Pat's sweet, dulcet tones, but don't worry. You guys will get to hear him talk to Aaron about uh, the Vintage Super League, so stay tuned for that a little later. Uh, awesome. Well, have a good night, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. All right, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed uh, Jerry and Jarvis sitting down and, and talking some legacy with you this week. Uh, you know, you can always find the show um, on Facebook. I'll put the link in the show notes. Also, you can find us on Hipster of the Coast. You can support the show on Patreon.com slash Leaving Legacy. Uh, you can find me at Pat Uglo on Twitter, um, twitch.tv slash Pat Uglo for the stream. And Jerry, you can find him on Twitter too, at JMEE3RD. Thanks again, guys, for hanging out. And uh, I'm going to play out some of the suite of my own accord. What the fuck? A tiger. Don't lose no sleep. Don't need opinions from my shellfish or a sheep Don't you come for me No, not today You're calculated I got your number Cause you're a joker And I'm a courtside killer queen And you will kiss the ring You best believe Within a minute, get used to it Funny my name keeps coming at your mouth Cause I stay with like Swish, swish, bish Another one in the basket
Queen, so I'm making hits with Kate. Swish, 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 swish. Another one in the basket. 